We're going to be studying and reading this text today, but there's coming a day when the readers of these texts will be caught up in the middle of what is called the Great Tribulation. It'll be a time of mass confusion, it'll be a time of mass deception, but even then there will be persons who have access to God's word and will be reading these words of the Lord Jesus that we're reading here in this passage before the coming of the Lord Jesus to earth. And it will be coming shortly after that moment in which you're reading it because they'll be just at the precipice. They'll be just at the door of this final conclusive work of the Lord Jesus that comes at the end of the great tribulation. During that time in which they'll be reading this, there'll have been false Christ, antichrists that have risen up throughout the generations. They've come and they've gone and they've come and they've gone and yet at the end of history they will coalesce and they will concentrate into one individual who is called the Antichrist. And you can read about him in 2 Thessalonians. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He'll come as a capstone to the rebellion of human beings who throughout history have resisted and denied God's truth. And at this time, humanity is going to be given over to the Antichrist mass deception and they'll be brought under his control and his leadership, his demonic leadership. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 9 through 12 speaks of this moment. I don't think I'll need to be giving an excess amount of commentary this morning. I'm going to be reading to you a number of passages, and the passages are graphic, and they're clear, and they should be understood as you read them. And what you don't understand, don't worry about. Worry about what you do. And here's what we read. Paul speaks of the Antichrist as, quote, the coming of the lawless one, who is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they may or should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness." Now the question we ask is, what is the lie that will be believed at that time under the rule or reign or the governance of the Antichrist? And that's given to us in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 and 4. So just go back here. The final lie given by the Antichrist and believed is this. You see it at the end of verse 3 there. There it says, quote, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. There's your deception. One day this deception will be the prevailing thought and the prevailing description that individuals will give to the Antichrist. And this will all happen at the middle of the Great Tribulation. And in the middle of that time, and in the middle of all the convolutions that are taking in history at that time, there will be some who will read these words that we've read in Matthew 24. Can you imagine what a mind-numbing time that will be? Can you imagine how confusing and complexing and destabilizing and disorienting life will be in that moment when there will be, as you read the book of Revelation, there will be these succession of judgments and these experiences of great sorrow and suffering that come upon the land and there will be these machinations of world powers coming together and gathering together, ruling and reigning over the people and this deception that will come of the Antichrist who has established himself in Jerusalem, the Bible says, and in that moment you'll have individuals who are just in a sense lost in a state of stunned confusion 
And in the middle of that time of stunned confusion, they'll read these words that we've read. And they'll receive a stark picture of what is directly ahead. Christ is coming again. His appearing at the end of the age is about to take place. And that stark picture will frame the experience of that moment. In that moment, it will clarify what's going on. They'll be able to look through the confusion and the haze and the difficulty and the challenge and the real malaise that's all around them and they'll see framed in the experience they're having this picture, this pronouncement of what's going to happen, clearly going to happen when Christ returns and his coming is going to be right upon them, nearly upon them. Wherever we find ourselves in human history, wherever you find yourself in your own personal history, these stark Real portraits of what shall come one day in visible, physical display to our world should frame the moments that we're in and give us focus so that we can see past the cloudiness and confusion of any given day or any given time period. These words will do it for those who read this passage then. They should do it for us today. What I want to do this morning is I want to point out some stark realities that we have in our text. And the first stark reality here is the stark reality of Christ's return. And it is conspicuous. It is obvious. It is seen by all. Christ appearing will not be a phased-in experience over time. It will be real and physical and immediate. It will be quick and sudden and visible to all those who are on the earth. And it will be overwhelmingly glorious. Listen to the description. As lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. In verse 30, then the sign of man will appear in heaven. The disciples had asked the Lord Jesus, what will be the sign of the destruction of the temple? And he tells them what the sign will be. There will be a moment when you'll see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and know that the destruction is near. The next question they ask is, what will be the sign of the end of the age and your appearing? And the Lord Jesus tells them, I'm the sign. The sign will be the sign of the Son of Man coming like lightning through the clouds across the skies and everyone will see him. And just prior to the statement, the Lord Jesus has talked about the way of false messiahs and antichrist, false Christ. And he says, they'll say, come out to the wilderness and we'll plan our revolts and we'll plan our positions and our our political movements or come into the private room and we'll talk about our machinations and they'll come making their treaties and their covenants with the people. But when the Lord Jesus comes, you won't go to meet him in the private room. You won't go to meet him in the wilderness. You won't go to sign some covenant which he will betray later on. No, he'll come with power and with a flash of glory and all eyes will see him and no one will miss him. That's the juxtaposition here. You'll know when I've come because I'll be the sign. I'll come and you'll see me. It'll be massive and it'll be a flash of power. He came once quietly and inconspicuously. He came once veiling off in flesh the glory of his presence. But he's coming again in a way that we've maybe rarely considered him. He's coming in the way in which he presented himself to John in the first chapter of Revelation that John writes. And there John writes of seeing one whose eyes were a flame of fire and whose body was a glow and burning like metal that was fired up in the furnace and his feet were burning as well and his voice as he spoke was like the sound of oceans, many oceans and John fell at his feet as though he was dead. Lord Jesus is coming with great glory manifesting his power and his might and he came once quietly but he will not do so again. The next time he will come and all the universe will contort also at his appearing. Look what also it says. 
immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is in Matthew 24, those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Have you ever been in an earthquake? Have you had the experience? We just had one about two years ago, was it? And we stepped out in that moment. And um, my wife stepped out of the house and I stepped out of the office. My office is detached from my home and we both stood and we were standing on the ground together looking at one another and the ground was literally rolling underneath our feet and we didn't have to say another word. We were just standing in the middle of the yard looking at one another. But it's an unsettling experience when the ground underneath your feet is rolling and shaking and rattling. And I understand it was a fairly mild one. I've never been in a really harsh one. I can't imagine what that would be like. My daughter-in-law was in one of the major earthquakes that one time hit Big Bear, California, and she was in the cabin with her family, and she was a little girl, and everybody ran out of the cabin, but someone had to come back in and retrieve her and grab her, and as grandfather was running out of the cabin, just as he went out the door of the front cabin, the whole cabin collapsed to the ground. Massive earthquake. How unsettling that would be to be in a situation like that. But here in this passage, what we're reading is not simply that the, there are other passages that will tell us that the earth will shake, but here it says the heavens will shake. Not simply the ground beneath you, but the sky above you. <laughs> the stars were why we've coursed out our navigation and found our direction. All that will be put out of its courses as he's coming. Everything will be shaking. Everything will be rolling. And there will be cosmic convolutions that will take place. And in God's word, as the prophets write about various times in which God comes to judge or God comes to deliver the nation of Israel or even when God works to deliver an individual, the author of scripture will pick up this kind of apocalyptic language. He'll describe how the, the heavens are convoluting and there's a rumble in the earth and the earth shakes and the stars are shooken from their place. And what they're revealing is that, in a sense, the idea is that behind the curtain of all the different things that you experience where God moves to your benefit and God rescues you and delivers you and as God sovereignly works to the nation, that there's a stirring of all creation at the expression of God rising up in his power. And so it's kind of poetic language reinforcing the idea of this sovereign, all-powerful God. But I don't believe it's only poetic language. I don't believe that we can just say that it's Jewish apocalyptic literature. I believe as we come to the end of the age, it's going to be actual and it's going to be real and it's going to happen. It's said too often. In fact, what I also believe is what you're reading in these other places where you see God moving in deliverance and the prophets have these visions in these time of deliverance. And when you see God working through the ages, bringing judgment, and they have these visions of this convolution of the cosmos and those times of deliverance, that what they're doing is in that moment of deliverance, at that hour in history, they are, in a sense, forecasting themselves to this future day when God will bring his ultimate judgment and his ultimate deliverance. And at that moment in time, they're, they're seeing all those things are hints of the great, the great clash of heavens and earth as Christ comes to deliver. It will be conspicuous. We will know what's going on. The very heavens will dance around us. When Christ comes, the universe will jolt. The stars will fall out of their courses. The light of the sun will give way to the light of the Son of God. And all this seeming language that seems to be an exaggeration of last day's events will prove to be truer and more real than we might imagine. And this will come at the end of the great tribulation. Christ's coming will vanquish. Think of this. Christ's coming at that time will vanquish all the vivid imagery and awful memories that have been gathered up by those individuals who have gone through the great tribulation. Read the book of Revelation. 
Read all of the horrors and all of the great plagues that come upon men during the great tribulation. And then consider that when the Lord Jesus returns at the end of that time, that so dramatic and so powerful and so awesome will be that event, they'll almost forget what they've just gone through. It will not be a point of reference for them anymore. It will be this, Christ coming. The great tribulation, this unparalleled trouble in human history will pass from their minds when they see Christ coming in infinite glory. It is conspicuous. That's the first thing. So listen, in the middle of the great tribulation, in the middle of their troubles, in the middle of the fog of all these things that are taking place, they're reminded, Christ reminds them that there is coming this clear, sharp, stark reality when he returns to the earth. And it won't be theoretical and we won't be simply postulating on times and exactly when it will happen. It will happen. And all the theorizing and all the contemplation and all the opining will be past. And it will just be him coming upon the earth. Here's another thing we read here. There is a stark reality of devastating judgment. And it is catastrophic. There is the stark reality of devastating judgment and it is catastrophic. This coming of the Lord Jesus to earth as lightning crossing across the sky is also described for us in Revelation chapter 19. Take your Bibles and turn there. Let's juxtapose the two together. Revelation chapter 19, let me read to you verses 11 through 16, and here is a description of the coming of the Lord Jesus at the end of the age. John is having this vision. John is seeing this. And by the way, Revelation is traditionally understood to have been written in about 92 A.D., So about 22 years after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. John writes this, And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, as you see, as you read this passage, when Christ returns, he's coming in this conspicuous fashion. He's coming as a warrior to wreak his final justice and judgment upon the earth. We have to think about this for a moment. We can't take our eyes away from it. It's hard for me, by the way, to look at individuals getting injured. When I was in my 20s, I, on two different occasions, severed ligaments in both of my legs. It was a rather painful experience. So now... When I'm watching a sporting event and some athlete injures himself and then they go to show a slow motion scene of what happened to them, I can't look. I always cover my eyes. My children make fun of me. They laugh at me because I cannot bring my eyes to look at them going through that experience and that suffering. It's, we have to be careful. We are forced here and we must look squarely at the unavoidable images that are coming down upon this earth one day in the future and... Yet, as we look at it, we almost are right to avert our eyes. It would be best for us to at least put our hands over our eyes a bit. We should take no pleasure in what we read here. At any point in time in our lives, we should not look as if we have some eagerness 
to see this destruction visited upon the earth. There are individuals who read these last day things and they almost read it as if it's another great apocalyptic novel, like they're reading some comic strip of some great and horrific event that's taking place and they find some entertainment in it and it answers some sense of curiosity or just idly looking upon it. This is real. This is genuine. This is awful and this is powerful and we must be careful how we look at it. We cannot take any pleasure. We've got to remember that Jesus wept over Jerusalem when he pronounced its coming destruction. We might want to recall that in Ezekiel 33:11, God says this, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. So as we look on and as we pay attention to and we see this hour of judgment that's coming upon all the earth, we should pray for a spirit of repentance even in that hour and for mercy to those who meet it even in that hour. I believe that is the divine and holy response to these things. This is not a place, this is not a moment, this is not a text over which you should look with any sense of idle curiosity and interest. It should be sobering to us. It should remind us that this day is real. It's not theoretical. It should clear our heads and our minds. It should turn us into prayers of, oh God, have mercy, and oh God, grant repentance. Here is what the Lord Jesus says in reference to this day of his coming. Here's what he says in our passage. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. You see that? For wherever the carcass is, there will the, the word is, the vultures will be gathered together. This is what he says. After he comes like lightning, he gives this next declaration, this next description of this moment. Wherever the carcasses lie, there the vultures will be. And we have to press back into Revelation chapter 19. I told you to stay there. We just read down to verse, from verse 11 to verse 16. Now we must read on to see what it is that the Lord Jesus is referring to. And John gives us a further vision, and this is the revelation of Jesus Christ as well. What John writes is, John is simply recording to us the revelation that the Lord Jesus gave him at this time, clarifying and bringing more information on the words he gave in this statement of what we call the Olivet Discourse. In verse 17, then John writes this, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Christ has now returned. He has emblazoned upon his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. His robe is dripped in blood. Out of his mouth comes this sharp sword. Then he writes, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in midheaven, Come assemble for the great feast of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, both free and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who had performed signs in his presence by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. That's the Antichrist. And those who worshipped his image, those who gave in to the deception. And these two were thrown alive in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Jesus says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be. When I come and return in this great conspicuous fashion... I'm bringing this awful judgment with me. That's what's coming upon the earth. Isaiah spoke of the same thing. Take your Bibles and go to Isaiah 34. Let me read to you verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 34. He foresaw this coming. 
Let me read to you verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction and has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, as leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword, now God speaks, my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold it, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Again, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. I'm not inclined to give much commentary to these things. They should speak for themselves. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, also gives us a description of this day that's described for us in in Isaiah 34, and what we've read of this description of the coming of the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. Here we read at the end of the age, again, this description, verse 12 of Revelation 6. Let me read this. Here it is. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the eminent people, and the commanders, and the wealthy, and the strong, and every slave and free person hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You'll notice in the awful hour in which God brings this judgment that the people are still not seeking God. They're not turning to God, but they run from God and they hide from God. You'll notice that they don't turn to cry out to be covered in the provision that God has made for them for their sins, but instead they call for the rocks and the caves to come upon them. Earlier on in these accounts, we'll read that during this great tribulation period, those saints of God are forced to rush and hide in the caves from the torment that they bring upon them and find their hiding places, and they're warned to do so. But now at the end of the age, those who pursued them and sought to persecute them will run to the caves themselves. Not at God's direction, not in responding to God, but fleeing from him and from his presence. And they'll persist in the rebellion so long that they'll seek only to have the rocks destroy them, lest they turn to face the one who's coming for them and coming in judgment. It's an interesting thing, though, as you look through the book of Revelation and you see the various plagues that are pronounced upon the land during the Great Tribulation, that you'll find very often that in the midst of it, God is pausing and listening for the note of repentance, the end of the various judgments that he brings. So you'll read, for example, in Revelation 9 of a plague that will come or a series of plagues that will come. In one place it says three plagues, in one place it says one plague, but it's a plague that ultimately results in the death of one-third of the world's population in a very short period of time. A pandemic, a pestilence that will come through all the land. And then at the end of that time, here's what we read. God is listening in. In Revelation 9.20, we read this. After one-third of the human population has died, it says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. 
But God was listening for it. God was listening for the cry of their repentance, but it did not come. You go to Revelation chapter 16, and it describes another judgment of a scorching heat that will come. It's almost like an atomic heat that will come upon the people and burn many of the people. And then after this great judgment comes, and even in the midst of the judgment, we read in Revelation 16 verse 9, it says this, And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Repentance and a cry for mercy evokes the rescue of God, and it's the cry of repentance that brings glory to God. And God was listening for it there too. But he did not hear the cry of repentance. And when he comes in the last moment, we are told that they will flee to the rocks and they'll cry out to the rocks. Not to God, they'll cry out to the rocks to hide them from his presence. They'll continue to flee away from them. When Christ was hanging upon the cross, we know that there were two criminals that were hanging next to him. And one of those criminals, in the midst of his suffering, went on to revile Christ even as he was dying on the cross. The other one said, let's not revile him. He is an innocent man, but we're getting what we deserve. And that man turned to Christ and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord Jesus heard in his words a cry of repentance. Lord, remember me. I need your mercy. I need you to remember me. And Jesus said to that man, in that hour, in that moment, and think of the tremendous suffering and agony he was experiencing as he's dying, hanging upon a cross. Lord Jesus said, this day you'll be with me, and this very day you'll be with me in paradise. Christ was listening for the cry of repentance and mercy. Upon it, he was ready to release upon that man complete and utter forgiveness and rescue, even in that terrifying hour. But on this day, the body of those who with unrelenting hearts have defied and denied him will be heaped up upon the earth. They see him come and they hide. They don't call out to him. As we said, they call upon the rocks to cover them. They prefer destruction to surrender and destruction is what they'll get. Here is the third stark reality. Think about that for a moment now. Perplexed in our day and age, perplexed in our time, somehow confused by the state of things. Here's a bracing image to look towards. There's the bracing image of the reality of Christ's return. Not speculated, not talked about, not learned in some Sunday school class. It will happen. It will be real. Now there's also the bracing image of his stark and complete and comprehensive and catastrophic judgment, and you cannot turn your eye away from that. But let's look at one other thing here. It's the stark reality of instant and worldwide repentance and faith. There is confession and compassion even in this hour. Here are the words that Jesus says. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. You see that in our text in Matthew chapter 24? Jesus says, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. He's quoting Zechariah chapter 12. We read it in our scripture reading this morning. John will repeat these exact same words from the Lord Jesus, that he heard the Lord Jesus. If we read our scripture and we look at the parallel accounts, we'll discover that it was James and John and Peter that the Lord Jesus was giving this discourse, this all of it discourse. John will repeat these exact same words and quote Zechariah 12 as well in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. It is actually a statement in which, in a sense, John is giving us the thematic purpose or theme of the book of Revelation. He writes this, Look, or behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will mourn because of him. 
Even so, amen. Even so, so be it. Jesus and John are both referring to Zechariah 12, verse 10. There in Zechariah 12, verse 10, the nation of Israel has been surrounded by the armies of the earth seeking their destruction. And at that moment, the Messiah comes into their rescue and delivers them at the end of the great tribulation. And the armies of the earth that have gathered for their destruction are met by the Messiah like a flash of lightning coming in the clouds to bring judgment upon them. And as they look upon him and they see them, this is what the Lord Jesus says, or what God says in Zechariah 12, verse 10. And then I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. I'll give them the grace to pour out their hearts before me in prayer. And then they will look on me whom they pierced. God is speaking here. I will give and they will. You want to see a passage of scripture that points out to the Trinity? That Jesus is God, the divine God. I will give them spirit of supplication and grace. And they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn. They will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. And if you go through the text, you'll see that there's mourning in the royal house and there's mourning in the priestly house and there's mourning throughout Jerusalem at that moment. And Jesus is describing the moment in which the nation of Israel turn in repentance and faith in him at the end of the age. It's the, the same moment that Paul was referring to in Romans chapter eleven twenty six. In Romans chapter eleven twenty six, Paul is describing a time of the Gentiles that we also read about in Luke and Paul is describing the time of the Gentiles in which judgment comes upon the people of Israel and the Gentiles tread under Jerusalem until the time of the Gentile period is over with. But it's during that time that the gospel goes out to the Gentile nations and the church is brought in and we are redeemed through the gospel ourselves. And then Paul says there's coming a day when Israel, who's been taken out of the trunk, you might say, of Christ's saving work and we have been grafted in. One day there's coming when they will be grafted back in. And so... Paul writes in 11 verse 26, and all Israel will be saved. And he's describing this moment in time in which the ethnic people of Israel gathered in Jerusalem, as Zechariah tells us, will look upon the one whom they've pierced and they'll be granted this spirit of repentance and supplication and out of their lips will pour out this confession and this cry. And I actually think Isaiah 53 are the words they're going to say. As they see Christ coming through the clouds to rescue them and deliver them from their own destruction as the nations are massed against them and they see him coming and they see this one who is bearing in his side and his hands the marks of his wounds of the crucifixion and they see it and all the earth sees it. They will cry out and say, looking upon him, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement that brings us peace was upon him and by his stripes we're healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And in that moment, that great day of confession, Christ's compassion will roll out to them and forgiveness, and cleansing, and washing, in the last hour, in the hour of judgment, will also come the hour of great deliverance. But here's the interesting thing. Zechariah only had his eye on Israel, in Jerusalem in that moment. Zechariah says Jerusalem will see them, and they will be granted this 
spirit of grace and of confession and supplication. And they will mourn and they will cry out and their deliverance will come and their sins will be washed away. And, but the Lord Jesus adds in referencing Zechariah 12 and John adds in referencing Zechariah 12 all the tribes of men, all the tribes of the earth will see him and mourn. What is this? Is this not a description of these last-minute confessors not only being in Israel but being across the earth? Those who have kept themselves from the mark of the beast and those who have survived that day will look upon him as he comes. Those who have survived that hour, those who may have resisted him up to that moment in that stark day will look upon the one who is coming and they'll cry out to him. He goes on to say that at the hour there will also be a stark reality of a calling into safety and a gathering in of a completed community to Jesus Christ from every wind and all the four winds of heaven. But I just want you to see here that this morning that Zechariah prophesies that will come to all Israel on that day, Jesus and John tells us will also come upon all the tribes of all the people of the earth. The tribes of the earth shall mourn. God listens for the cries of repentance and calls for mercy. And on that horrible day, the cries will rise up from all over the earth. Criminals on their crosses in the midst of their suffering will cry out from around the earth, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me. And in that stunning hour of tremendous judgment and wrath, Habakkuk's prayer will be heard and answered. In wrath, O God, remember mercy. And he shall. It'll be a day of great mercy too. That's the thing to look to. Great judgment, great judgment. Oh, the cost of rebelling and resisting God. Oh, the cost of turning from him and trying to solve your own problems and your own power. Oh, the cost of seeking your own independence. But even in the hour of his great judgment, he's listening for the cry of repentance and the call for mercy and he's ready to relent and give it and he does. And immediately after that morning, it says he gathers from the four winds his elect, those that he's brought to himself. We work and we labor. We long to see our children. We long to see others brought to Christ. We do it in light of this wonderful truth that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, but we also do it in light of the judgment that's coming that men may escape. We do it because now for us, this is our night, but our day is coming. Our endless day is coming, but this is the world's day and their endless night is coming. Should they turn away from him and reject him? We do it because we want them to experience the endless eternity that waits for them in heaven. We want them to enter into the joy and the satisfaction that we have in Christ. We don't live in fear. We don't live in confusion. We know the stark realities of what Christ said he's going to do. We believe it. We know it's true. We look to him with clarity and vision, even in the midst of the time we're in. We grieve at the judgments as we see them fall. They remind us of greater judgments still to come. But in the end, let it also remind you, mercy is to be found. Oh, the triumph of grace and mercy. It's what we long for. It's what we work for. That men might come to repentance. God will not forget it even in the last hour. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Such a vision as this, O God. Not merely a vision. A forecast of things to come. 
more real than we might know, (laughs) more real than all of our thoughts and all of our imaginations, complete and vivid reality. It is coming. You are coming. But oh God, how we praise you and thank you that you're also coming not only to judge but to deliver. We thank you for that. We thank you that if we come with you in your army and we are descending with you at that moment, if we're not the ones here on earth, we're descending with that moment, oh God, we thank you that in the midst of judgment you're going to remember mercy. It'll be our great delight. See the great longing of our hearts, the great longing of the heart of men and women who know the saving grace of Jesus Christ that others might know it still. That even then, even then in that hour, our longings will be fulfilled. We praise you for that. We want to live in light of those things. Let that be our confidence. And now, Lord Jesus, let that also be our aim to work towards that end in the lives of people. In Jesus' name, amen.